I would say that in the future of work, we need to aggressively manage our time. That's not so that we crank out more widgets. It's so that we have more like actual time and mental time, mental space to show up to work as a better human. You work hard in your business. On the Profit by Design podcast, we ask the big question. What has your business done for you lately? Hi, I'm Dr. Sabrina Starling. I'm the business psychologist, the author of the four-week vacation and the How to Hire the Best series, as well as the founder of Tap the Potential, where we coach entrepreneurs like you to design sustainably profitable businesses that give you more time for what matters most and more money in your bank account than ever. Because after all, we believe work supports life, not the other way around. Weekly on the Profit by Design podcast, we bring you tips, tools, and strategies from our own experiences and from the experiences of our guests who are entrepreneurial thought leaders and real life entrepreneurs, all to support you in making intentionally profitable and sustainable business decisions to live the lifestyle you desire. Welcome to the Profit by Design podcast and Happy New Year. This is the start of 2023 and it is, this year is going to be different and better in so many ways. And I want to just acknowledge I have a special guest here with me on the Profit by Design podcast. This is Dr. Jenny Byrne, and she is the author of a new book that we'll be talking about shortly. And I can't wait to share this with you because in terms of making 2023 better, learning how to be a better human, how to be a better leader, and how to really make our work environments work for us as human beings. That's the topic of Dr. Jenny's book that we'll be getting into shortly. And before we go there, I do want to share one exciting announcement coming up here at Tap the Potential. We have been talking for the last couple of months about the Better Business, Better Life program and supporting entrepreneurs in taking their lives back from their business. And so I want to make sure everyone knows that on January 16th, we have our Better Business, Better Life Jumpstart coming up. And the jumpstart is your opportunity to have a, a an immersion experience with Tap the Potential and work with our team to take the initial steps from the Tap the Potential solution to taking your life back from your business. This is a closed door live Zoom training with myself and the other members of the Tap the Potential team where we work with a group of entrepreneurs to take you through designing your business to be sustainably profitable and putting strategy in place so that as you go through 2023, you will have a business that allows you to have that life that you want to experience, the freedom that you want to experience. So the jumpstart is where you get the initial first steps and you get a real experience of what it's like to be working with us at Tap the Potential. So get signed up for it. This is five days, an hour each day. You're going to want to attend live and block the time on your calendar. So head on over to tapthepotential.com forward slash jumpstart and get signed up. Okay. 
So now let's dive into our topic for today. Dr. Jenny Byrne is an entrepreneur. She's a psychiatrist. She is a mom. She of two teenage girls. She's a brain and behavior expert. She's a healthcare executive. She's also a coach and psychotherapist. And her new book is Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work. Dr. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be here, and I feel honored to kick off the new year with you. Yes, I think this is exciting. I've had the honor of being on the journey with you as you have written this book. I remember a conversation that you and I had about a year ago when you were writing the book and we were talking about just what it's like to be a business owner and a professional these days in this world and how challenging it is. There's so much competing for our attention and how hard it can be to just show up as your best in the workplace. And I know that you have a very powerful why for why you wrote this book. So I think let's just dive in there and and talk about what inspired you. Yeah. So when we spoke about a year ago, when I jumped into the adventure of writing a book, I was talking with my friends and colleagues and folks like you, and everybody was saying the same thing, which is, you know, two years into pandemic, most people have had to learn how to work in different ways. They're working virtually and everyone's like, well, what do we do next? And everybody kind of shrugged and said, well, I don't know, I guess we'll just go back. And I was like, wait a minute, you complained all the time about your job and your office and you kept telling me how you hated it and it was so terrible. And and you kept telling me about how working at home or virtually has, has been helpful. And, and I'm like, well, why would you just want to go back? I don't understand. There's this moment and this opportunity to do things differently and better, why wouldn't you take advantage of it? So it was really kind of my frustration. And, you know, I had all the same questions everyone else did, which is how do I do this? How do I work at home? How do I work with my teams? How do I use Slack or, you know, and I was looking for the answers and I felt like the answers just weren't there. And so I did my own research and used my lens as a brain and behavior specialist And I just dug in with that lens and I found that I learned some really interesting things and I felt passionate I wanted to share this with other people because I really do believe the future of work is here now and we have this wonderful opportunity to really embrace it. So what I love about the perspective you're taking in the book is that you say you're convinced that the future of work is about being a better human and you're using an understanding of the human brain and behavior to infuse humanism into the workplace today. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, corporate culture, like where did that even come from and what's different about infusing humanism into our workplace cultures? This was one of the most interesting things I learned when I was researching, which is that the classic kind of American or Western corporate world really started only a hundred years ago. And it started on the Henry Ford assembly line. Before that work looked very different for most people, but Ford had this insight about how to improve efficiency using human workers at that time to put together cars on an assembly line. And as that 
worked really well for him, the corporate culture grew out of that because as the factory floor got bigger, well, you needed people to manage it. So where did those people go? Well, they needed to sit and watch everyone. So they built a layer, you know, story number two, and the manager sat up there so they could go down and help the floors. And then as it got bigger, they needed managers of managers and other leaders. And so they built another floor in the building. And so before you knew it, we had this assembly line mentality that was a five-story building with layers of management and seeing people as basically parts of a machine, parts of an assembly line. And so we never really questioned this. And so it continued. Post-war America boomed. We had this huge industrial boom. And so this culture just grew and grew and grew. Even when companies are thousands of employees large, it's still the same basic assembly line idea. So it's no wonder that most people in corporate America feel like they're cogs in a machine. And it feels pretty bad, honestly. I've worked in different settings, one of which is corporate settings. And most of the time you feel like a machine and that doesn't feel so great. And things aren't really designed for humans. They're kind of designed for machines. Like the humans are there to serve the machines, not the other way around. You know, this is touching on something, a conversation we were just having in our living room last night. My husband, myself, and my teenage daughter, and she had made a statement, something that she'd picked up on that I said. And I said, it sounds like they're just preparing you for the corporate culture. And my husband questioned that. And he said, well, what is the corporate culture? And where does that even come from? And my daughter, who's, you know her, this is Kylie, Dr. J, you met her at the retreat. She's been raised around entrepreneurs. And she's, she's heard all these corporate refugees talking about, oh, you know, you're just, you're a, a cog in a machine and you're not treated as a human being. And she said, I don't want to be stuck in a windowless cubicle surrounded by other people and being told to do the same thing over and over every single day. And my husband pointed out to her, he said, you know, that's a stereotype. It's not every corporation or every business is like that. And so I know that not every corporation and, and every business is like that. And, you know, at Tap the Potential, we work with so many business owners who are committed to creating great places to work. And when we're looking at creating a more humanistic environment, that's definitely a piece of creating a great place to work because it's all about you know, work supports life, that everybody needs to benefit from the work that's being done and being able to grow from it. And so as you're looking at bringing humanism and what we can be doing differently, what are some places that if where we, because most everybody who listens to the Profit by Design podcast, entrepreneurs, team members, entrepreneurial companies. So what are some things we should be looking at? paying attention to. So I love your saying, so I'm a tap the potential proud graduate. I love the saying work to support life. And in this case, you might tweak it and say something like, you know, the robots should support the humans, not the other way around. So that might be the little tweak. But I think that what most people are looking for, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, they're looking for human connectedness. They want that at work, not just at home. And so building the capacity for connectedness, which is often through empathy skills, which you and I trained on when we were learning psychotherapy, like we actually trained on it. So I think the connectedness and the empathy piece is what we're all craving in corporate America or anywhere really. But to get there, there are some foundational steps. So in the book, what I kind of structured it is that time management and communication are really the building blocks 
And sometimes people feel like that's the solution. Well, they're not exactly the solution. They're kind of the building blocks to get to the empathy and connectedness that we all desire so much. Tell me more about that. How is time management a building block towards empathy and connectedness? So I would say that in the future of work, we need to aggressively manage our time. That's not so that we crank out more widgets like forward on the floor. It's not so that we're going to crank out more widgets. It's so that we have more time, like actual time and mental time, mental space to show up to work as a better human. So when your time management is poor, one phrase I love is time confetti. This term comes from Bridget Schulte a number of years ago in her book, Overwhelmed Before the Pandemic. And time confetti is like all the little tiny bits of time that are just thrown around every day, whether that's an email or a task. or So people are throwing their time around and scattering it around, which we know is very ineffective from psychology and studies of the human brain. We know that you lose productivity dramatically when you throw your time all around. So one example of time management that's really important is learning how to chunk tasks that are similar so you're not task or context shifting back and forth. So for example, if you have email, most people still use email, limiting your email to one chunk in the morning and one in the afternoon, or maybe three or maybe one a week or whatever works for you, but chunking your emails and then turning them off. That is way more effective and it keeps your brain from trying to jump around. And I know most people listen to this and they're like, well, that's actually impossible. And I'm here to tell you, like, it is not impossible. It takes a little work, but you would notice a dramatic improvement in your brain when you're able to chunk your email and then put it aside. Yeah. And I want to share that I personally checking my email once a week. Now. Wow, you've really chunked. I have chunked and I have an executive assistant who filters my email and it doesn't mean that I don't respond to an e- I only respond to email once a week. She will tell me, hey, there's something here that needs your attention and I'll go in at some point during the day and I will respond to that. But as far as just sorting through and going through, it's once a week and it's about an hour. And so I love that phrase, time confetti, because it's such, it's so easy for us. I feel like one of the greatest learnings that I've had, and it's probably taken me five years to get to where I'm getting more masterful at it, is to understand that there's all these little things that want our attention throughout the day. Social media, our phones dinging, text messages, phone calls coming in, and we don't have to respond. Like that awareness, like, oh, just because my phone buzzed in my pocket, I don't have to take it out and talk or I don't have to do something with that social media post or or whatever that's pulling to the attention and just giving myself that permission to do that. And it allows what you're describing, the time blocking to happen so that we can focus on our highest value or what I call the $10,000 an hour activities for entrepreneurs. We don't, if we allow that time confetti to come in and take our time, we don't ever have the time to focus on that high value activity. In your experience and in the book, what are some tips that you give and what advice would you give for people who are really feeling like I can't ever get to this or that that feels really important? When I've coached 
people and coach kind of myself too. And like you said, it does take years sometimes to get like really good at it. I think one of the biggest tips is carve out, just start with like five minutes, you know, carve out five minutes of not checking email or not checking social media. And this is where, you know, you say robots can help the humans. Most of these platforms are designed to grab our attention, right? With little ping, 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 dopamine squirts in the brain. But they're also designed that we can turn them off and put on, it takes an extra step, but you can make the robot serve you instead of the other way around. So my first tip is like, just carve out five minutes. And if all you do in that five minutes is like, okay, what are my email settings? I'm going to reset them so they don't ping on me, you know, on my phone, or just start with a very small amount of time where you're not checking things. And then you can kind of build up on it. Another one is my favorite to experiment with at the beginning is schedule send. So if you're using either email or Slack or pretty much any platform, you can schedule send the email. So I, you know, if I happen to look at an email at 1 p.m., I don't respond at 1 p.m. because I don't want the other person to get into that email ping pong with me, which is what is the normal culture. So I write the response and I time it to go out at 4.45 p.m. So my secret tip, if you ever get emails from me, you'll see they're always at 4.45 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so that you know that I got your message and that I have a response for you. But so you don't feel pressure to respond before you sign off at five. That's secret tip. I love that. And the email ping pong is so true. And that can become a huge time suck for both people involved. So let's shift here and let's talk about Zoom fatigue. And because Zoom has become very much a part of our reality in the last few years for everyone. So, and we feel it. We talk about Zoom fatigue. What's underneath that and what can we do about it? So as a result of the pandemic, people got more interested in this. There was already research happening. But what is so fascinating about Zoom or other video interactions is they're not really very well designed for humans. So when you put on your default, typically you have some sort of Hollywood squares, right? You see a whole bunch of faces looking at you, you see your image down in the corner. So our brains have two kinds of neurons that pick up on this. So we have face neurons. They're neurons in our brain that are specifically designed to recognize faces, specifically human faces, although monkey faces can sometimes trigger them. But We have special cells for that and we're very social creatures. So that's part of our brain. So when we see a face, it really activates our brain. All there's a couple networks that get activated with these face cells. We also have something called mirror cells. So the mirror cells in the brain as humans, we want to mirror each other's behavior to build trust and bonding. This is another tip to like build trust with someone, right? If you see me go like this, and then you go like this, it's an automatic signal to the brain subconsciously that this is someone who you can trust. So because we have mirror cells and because we have face cells, when we see a Zoom screen with our own face or a bunch of faces looking at us in a very unnatural way, it triggers all sorts of confusing neuronal signals to the brain. And we have to spend huge amounts of brain energy trying to process it all. And that's why we get so exhausted. 
Couple that with people that are women or other underrepresented groups who feel like they're typically very scrutinized for their appearance. Now you put on that, you know, self view and it gets even worse. And so the research is showing that Zoom fatigue is worse for people who like women and underrepresented groups who feel more scrutiny. So the bottom line is if you wanna feel better when you do Zoom, it's not great because it's still not supernatural, but if you wanna feel better, turn off your self view. Turn it on, look at yourself, make sure there's, you know, don't have stuff in your teeth. Turn it off. Don't do Hollywood squares. There's a couple times when I would say you might want to do Hollywood squares. If you are the presenter and you're doing a performance of, you know, you might want to be seeing reactions. Otherwise, no, put it on speaker view. So you see one face at a time. The other tip, which I'm actually not doing a great job of right now myself, <laughs> is to uh, put some distance from your screen. So like you should put about an arm's length from the screen, that will help your brain not feel trapped in the box. And you'll move, your body language will become more natural. So that's a little, so those three things, try that experiment, you know, turn off your self view, turn on speaker view and sit further away and see how you feel. Normally you feel better, but it's still not natural. So it is still more tiring than it would be if you were in the room with somebody. Yeah. And another tip that I have is unless it's a team meeting where you need multiple people together on a conference, ask if there's opportunity just to have a phone call. Well, I think the best. So my tip, what I do with my teams is I get, I say, let's start on video and we start for a couple minutes. Hey, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, okay, we're going off video. Oh, and then we just go off. And then anytime we're sharing a screen of some kind, a document or whatever, we just, I say, okay, I'm sharing screen. Everybody go off video. And then if at the end of the call, I feel like we need to come back on for some reason, I'll say, oh, just come back on for a sec to say goodbye. So just turn it on to, to see everybody and then turn it off. You don't need it on for the whole time. That's a great pointer. Okay. All right. So I also know that you have a pretty interesting discussion around what happens to our brains when we see emojis. Yes. So I was a big emoji hater, I will admit, for many years because I thought they were like silly or frivolous and they didn't have any place in work. And I'm like, wow, I was totally wrong. So here's why I was wrong. Emojis. So most, you know, the first emoji was the smiley face before we had the little icons, we had the little, you know, colon with the parentheses. So I think I mentioned earlier, right, we have face cells in our brain. What's interesting is emojis are recognized as faces by our face cells in our brain. So our brain is reacting to emojis in a similar way that we would to an actual human face. So a happy emoji is triggering happy face sad emoji is triggering sad face. And, you know, there's some slight cultural differences between facial expressions, but for the most part, they're fairly consistent across time and culture. So emojis actually help our brains work better, which I was a total skeptic on. And now I'm a total convert and learning how to use emojis and icons has been really helpful. So I'm curious because this triggers for me, you sent me an email a few weeks back and it was very concise bullet points and lots. I, now I understand all the emojis in it. And I it. It was a very, you asked me, how was this email for you? And I was like, this format's great. It was fun, but I didn't know all the why behind it. So what, talk to me about the conciseness and you have this in your, on your website for your book too. And it's also in the flyer that you sent me about your book. Yeah. So what I've learned, and I would say I'm continuing to learn 
and I'm learning more about the visual design part of how brains work. But basically, when you're doing written communication, right now our culture is so awash in words. Most people write email in this very formal, as if you were writing some memo that was going to be framed on the wall kind of way, right? Not in a natural human way at all. So you want to keep the formality needed to, you know, this is a document that could, you know, be used in the workplace and be audited or something, you know, so you need to keep some formality, but you also need to make it very concise. So anything you can do to minimize the number of words. So you mentioned bullet points. I love bullet points, but what I like even better is now I use an emoji or an icon for my bullets. So if I want to talk about a thank you, I might use a, a thank you emoji as the bullet. If I want to talk about my book, I might put a little book. If I want to just be happy, I have a little emoji that's like my little sunglass guy, just because that's kind of suits me. And then people start to recognize your emojis, like which one of your favorite emojis, and they start to think of you without, you know, consciously knowing it's you. So basically, where can you put a couple symbols in instead of words to trigger that part of your brain? Where can you link to things in your document as opposed to putting, writing them out? So I think what I sent you, I said, you know, here's the link to this. And then I linked a hyperlink in the email. Here's a link to this. Here's a link to this. And so what they see is a very straightforward three bullet, you know, message, but it actually can go much deeper if you link into things. So there's a book called Smart Brevity, which came out recently, and it's kind of controversial for what they talk about, but they do have some really clever ideas about how to really get concise with your language in a way that humans respond to. So I think that's an interesting one to check out. Well, I will say that, you know, when I opened your email, my initial was like, I'm curious. And when I open up an email that is long and multiple paragraphs, I just, my initial reaction is like, oh, I'll do this later. And so yours pulled me in and it was very easy for me just to go through. And I am a very like direct responder and I often find myself feeling like I've got to add some words here to what I'm putting in this email. So I love this because this is giving me permission. Like this is my natural style of communication to be brief and to the point. And the emojis also, they soften it. So it doesn't sound like it's just a list of bullets. So this is a very intriguing possibility to play with some with email communication. And it also sounds like it's not just email communication. This could be relevant. Exactly. I think most, a lot of people are using different direct messaging, whether that's Slack or Teams. Slack is a little easier to use emojis with. And I do have a pro tip if you're using Slack. I don't know if Teams can do this but you can custom emojis in Slack. So I'm working with a company, Belong Health. What we're doing is we have core values and each core value we've created an emoji, a little icon. And then we can, anytime we see that core value being demonstrated by a message or a team member, we can put that as our you know, emoji or icon and it's wonderful because it really like is that constant reminder of like why we're doing what we do and it's a little visual so that's another tip you can do pretty easily in Slack. I'm not sure if all the platforms do that, but you can create your own symbols for your organization or your logo or, you know, something that you want to share with your team members to keep that really fresh. Okay. That's, that's really good. That's a great, those are some great pointers. So another area that you really dive into in the book that I think is so relevant and so important is 
understanding empathy fatigue, why it's happening, and especially as leaders, what we can be doing about it for ourselves and for our team members. Yeah. So one of the, again, self-disclosures here, when I was working with you all at Tap the Potential, you know, we, you do introspective work and you learn about your own style. And I did something called Strength Finders and I scored very low on empathy. And I was like, well, that's weird. <laughs> that's kind of my whole job. Yes. <laughs> I thought I was pretty good at this. And what I realized was that it's not that I'm not good at it. I am good at it and I've trained in it, but it's tiring for me. And so I tell a story in the book of, you know, when I started a practice, you know, I wanted to see people all day long and I saw, you know, eight patients a day. And then I started doing more medicine management. And then I would maybe see 10 people a day, 12, 15. And I started to get exhausted. It was the same number of hours of work, but it was exhausting. And it was because I was hitting my empathy ceiling and trying to push past it. And so empathy fatigue is very real. And psychotherapists like yourself or me, you know, we train in this and we train to know that we have a limit to our own ability to empathize. And we learn that we need to do things to safeguard our empathy so that we have it when we need it the most for that difficult employee situation or that client that's really struggling or, you know, or a leader, just you have to show up in a certain way. And so you have to understand yourself and kind of how much empathy you have to give. And then you have to take restorative practices to make sure that you have it. And that's different for everybody. But for me, it's been creative work, stepping away from my desk, uh, taking walks every day. I've done a lot more yoga playing music again, like whatever is restorative for you, you have to, and that's the time management, right? You got to, first of all, give yourself some time. And then the more restorative practices you can do, then you can show up with that energy, that, you know, more humanistic energy to be there for people. And it really goes a long way. And leaders, I believe, who are the most successful in current workplaces are the ones who understand their own empathy reserve and how to manage it. And like, when do I really want to show up with a high amount of energy for my day? Yeah. And this is so important. And I see this coming up when business owners and team members start doing one-to-ones. And so when you're doing a one-to-one, it's a dedicated space for that employee, the direct report, where they can share what they're working on and what they need support on. Oftentimes, personal issues will come in. And that's good. They should be there because you need to know your team members as a whole human being. And when they have things going on in their personal life that affect their work, it's great for you to be able to support them. And it also can be very challenging and draining for the leader who is conducting those one-to-ones. And one of the questions I teach the coach approach class where we're teaching coaching skills and how to ask the powerful questions. And one of the things that I've started sharing as a pointer is when the one-to-ones go much longer than you expect, like if you set aside 20 minutes or 30 minutes and you find your one-to-ones going for 45 minutes or an hour, be mindful of asking the closed-ended questions (laughs) to wind down the meeting because the open-ended questions will keep the conversation and the emotion going. And so just coming in and, and the other tip that I have around this is when it's about five minutes to the end of the meeting, say, I'm noticing our time. 
you know, what else is important that we need to get to, or what are you taking away from our conversation today to, to wind it down? And that is a way of protecting you, the leader, because you don't have boundless empathy and time. And the other thing to be aware of is how you schedule those one-to-ones. So what advice would you give around that? So again, this is where we're all human. We all have things that work better for us. So for me, chunking one-to-ones is very helpful. So we talked about chunking like tasks. So for me to say this afternoon is all my one-on-one time. And then I know before that starts, that's, I need some restorative, you know, I need some quiet time that morning. Maybe I need a walk before I sit down. That's one tip for me is to chunk them. Other people might find it better to do one a day at a certain time of day, but I like chunking them. I'm also a big fan of buffers. So anytime you schedule a meeting, don't schedule. If anybody goes to my calendar, you're going to be like, why are all your meetings 15 or 20 minutes long? You need a buffer in there, right? Either you're a human being, you have to like, you know, go to the bathroom or do whatever human thing you have to do, first of all. And then you need to sometimes like gather yourself. And as a therapist, you learn that, right? You need that 10 minute buffer between appointments to like pull yourself together sometimes, right? Take a moment. And then, you know, the other, when you were saying about the wrapping up, I'm smiling, I'm remembering in therapy, there's something called the like hand on the doorknob comment, (laughs) which you've had probably like, you know, hey doc, you know, my hand's on the doorknob, I'm walking out the door. Oh, by the way, you know, I had liver failure last week or by the way, you know, I'm getting divorced or so people, that's a very human thing to do is to, you know, dump something at the last minute. And I find most leaders are like, go into panic mode when they get a comment like that. And so I have some tips and tricks, and I'm sure you do too, for the hand on the doorknob. But one of them is to have the buffer. Because if you have the buffer and there's a hand on the doorknob, you do have another five, 10 minutes to play with. Or, you know, my when I was doing therapy, my trick that someone taught me was to say, oh, that sounds like that might be really difficult. What's the hardest thing about that for you? And they say something and I say, how are you coping with that? And they say something, I say, okay, if we need more time, let's get some more time later. And it sounds weird, but that actually works really well too, is kind of the acknowledgement of the feeling, right? Narrowing the focus, like you said, close-ended, like what's the hardest part about it? What are you doing to cope to make it more kind of like, oh, I could cope and then picking up more time if needed. Yeah. I also want to say one of the, in my experience, the hand on the doorknob comments come because you've done such a good job in the entire meeting of creating a safe, supported environment. That person finally feels like, oh, I can say this thing that's been on my chest and it's a little scary. So I'm on the doorknob or I'm out, I've got my hand on the door. So I'm on the way out. So it's okay to say it. So it, they may not want to go into something deep. And if we make a mistake by assuming exactly they want a lot of time to talk about this. You're so, and it's so funny. I, when I had more of a kind of traditional corporate leader job, national job, it was always my psychotherapy skills that came in the most handy when learning how to manage people or be a leader or, you know, and it's the same for entrepreneurs. I wish I had thought of that earlier when I had my practice. I think I would have been a better leader there if I had used, realized that my doctors were human beings just like me and that like I should use those same skills there. Yeah. It's all part of the learning journey. And What I think about when I think about entrepreneurs who are shifting from the doing 
and you're really building a team and you're learning how to lead and then you need to teach your team members the same things that you're learning. So as we're learning to be better humans in the workplace and being more mindful of how Zoom impacts our humanism and how emojis impact our humanism and in time management, all of how that creates an opportunity for us to be better humans with each other. How do we teach this to our teams? How do you know, we learn it ourselves. How do we get this to our team members? I try to, you know, this is where one of the reasons I wanted to write a book was so I could learn how to tell stories in a better way and give examples and things that would resonate with some people respond better, you know, to stories, some like to look at data. And so learning new ways to kind of get the message across and then making it really practical. I think the more that you can have a concrete example of something and dig into it together, you know, very practical. So don't say, oh, you need to write better emails. You know, like say, let's pull up the email. Let's go through it. Okay, here. Oh, well, maybe you could do this. What do you think is, and like just being more hands-on and like concrete when you're trying to explain a concept. And then when I coach, one of the things I like coaching, which is a little different than psychotherapy is that you do these little like experiments, right? You're like, okay, here's the concept. Why don't you go do an experiment? What's the experiment you're gonna do? Let's get curious and come back to me and tell me how did it go? What did they say? You know, like I'm super curious. And I find that again, in coaching, you can do a little more of that sometimes than in therapy and making everything an experiment to me makes it more curious and fun and giving your staff permission to have a little fun. You know, like the emojis are kind of fun. You know, like it's, this is something I've learned over the years. Like I don't have to be so serious to be effective. And then sometimes I'm a little vulnerable too. And you mentioned like showing up for those one-to-ones. If I have something in my life that is really impacting me and I can't pull it together, you know, I might even say like, hey, you know, I don't really want to need to go in the details, but I just wanted to let you know, like I got some other stuff in the background. And so if I seem a little distracted today, you know, I'm just letting you know up front, I'm sorry, that's something gone on. And we can always get more time later if we need it. And you don't want to dump all your problems on your team because that's not helpful to them. But sometimes it's okay to be a little vulnerable and share something fun about yourself. Or I've been sharing more about, you know, things I do for fun. And there's a colleague of mine, Dr. Alan Schlechter, who is a psychiatrist I trained with, and he is teaching at NYU about positivity. And he's researching something called positive assessment, where you prime people with positive emotions to get them to think better. So when you're a psychiatrist, for example, normally patient comes into the doctor and you're like, well, what's wrong with you? And the first thing you do is talk about all the things that are wrong with you. And that primes you negatively. But if you prime a patient, they come and say, well, I want to talk about all this, but first let me ask, you know, what are your strengths? What will your friends say are really great things about you? It primes them with positive emotions so that they can then open up their thinking with you. And his work is just fascinating. And there's like practical applications for that, too. I have tons of anecdotal experience with it. You know, Dr. Jenny, we always start off meetings that have the potential asking about wins and successes. And that happened. We started doing that because early on in my coach training, when I would sit down with a coaching client, and I'd ask them where do you want to focus today. If that was the question that I started with, then we got all the problems. And it was a very energy draining meeting. But I learned if we start with what are the wins and successes, 
that moves everyone into a positive frame of mind and an empowered frame of mind. Like then we can tackle the challenges with that energy that comes from that. And you have teenager, I have teenager, you know, like one thing with teenagers is sometimes they don't come to you with the winds of the day. And so sometimes, you know, I started doing with one of my teenagers, my weekly retrospective, I've been, we've been doing it together. And I'm like, well, what was your win of the week? This was my win. What was your win? And it's so true what Dr. Allen is teaching. And as a leader, an entrepreneur, you know, like showing up with that kind of energy, it just goes so far. It's really hard to explain until you've seen it in action. And many of your listeners maybe have seen it in action and seen it be really effective. Well, and you've touched on this, but I want to just pull this out here because I think this is such an important piece for us as leaders to be mindful of is that we have to take care of ourselves first. That's been a common thread through every point we've discussed is that we have to take care of ourselves first so that we show up with our teams with this positive energy. Because if we don't do that, if we just go from one thing to the next and we bounce around, then we're not bringing an energy into the interactions with our team members that's going to create the best thinking, the best interactions, and things slide off from there. And so a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk with really struggle to give themselves permission to do the self-care. And it feels like, well, there's so many things needing my attention. How do I even make time for this? So I would love to hear your experience with that, Dr. Jenny, because you've been that person and you deal with that yourself. So what are some of your learnings? Oh, and I was the worst too. I mean, you know, doctor culture, you do everything yourself. So I was really bad and I was such a doer and it was very hard to stop doing everything. Very, very hard, still hard sometimes. But actually, I think what blew my mind when you started doing the four week vacation, I think I was in your first cohort that tried it. And you said that, and I was like, that's impossible. I could never do like, that's ridiculous. And then, I, you know, it was almost like one of those where you challenged me to do it. And I was like, okay, I'll do it because I'll show you that it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, and when I did it, it just totally blew my mind. Like it just blew my mind. And I was like, wow, when I am not there, first of all, look how I came back and then look how they were. I mean, it was just like literally mind blowing. So what is the hardest part I think about it is like, you have to not work to work. Like you have to not do work to be better at work. And that is such a counterintuitive message that our culture just doesn't, you know, there are other cultures that promote that, but ours doesn't. And so I've had to do it over and over to prove it to myself. So I would just say if anybody is questioning, if you can do it, just do it. Like, you know, I think see. <laughs> do an experiment and see, because I didn't believe it until I did it myself. And that's unplugged vacation, right? The art of the unplugged vacation is hard. I took unplugged two weeks last summer for a trip and I'd been practicing over the years. So I got a lot better at it, but wow, I came back from that trip. I mean, I was just like a different person, you know? So you just have to try it. You probably don't believe me. You probably don't believe Dr. Sabrina. All I can say is you just have to try it and see for yourself. You have to try it. And you know, the unplugged 
vacation really touches on everything we've been hitting on here. And because when we unplug, it's a digital detox and we learn how to be present as human beings again. And for those of us of a certain age, we can remember what life was like before a cell phone. Not everybody has that. And that is a touchstone that I often hear when older entrepreneurs come back from vacation. They're like, this was like being a kid again. It's been, you know, years since I've been cell phone free and to just be cell phone free and to be fully present with my family, such a gift. And one of the things that I felt when I've come back from my first couple of four week vacations, the first couple of years I did it was I felt this tremendous sadness of having to reconnect again. And what I learned is I can disconnect every single day. Yes. Oh, yes. Every day. You know, I can put the phone away at the end of the day and be fully present with my family. I can do it over the weekends. So we have to learn to give ourselves permission so that we don't have to just wait till a, a, you know, a vacation to fully unplug, but we can make that a part of our daily experience. And that allows us to be the better humans that are needed to lead in our workplaces. Yeah. And make the robots work for you. Like, so my solution is, you know, I have kids that go off to school every day. And so if there's something emergency, like I want to make sure someone can get me. So my solution is a watch. So I don't have my phone with me at all. I just have the watch. And that way I know that any urgent phone call or text can come through to me. So I'm like, well, I just got my watch on. I'm good to go. So it's not like I'm unplugged from my watch, but I'm making the robots work for me instead of against me. Yeah. Instead of feeling beholden and that you have to just respond. And I would say the other, the one caveat to what you mentioned with the four week vacation is that for many people being unplugged is really uncomfortable. Their brains are really used to getting the dopamine squirts and the being plugged in or fear. I talk in the book about fear of missing out, regret, aversion. So it's actually really uncomfortable. And so a tip I had, I think you talk about this in the book, but I plan something to do so that I know, I feel like I'm going to do something. So, you know, that might be, I'm going to take a walk. You know, I like make this plan and whether or not I follow the plan isn't important. It's just to minimize some of the discomfort I feel in the idea of like being unplugged. And I would offer for someone who feels really uncomfortable being unplugged from work, like they just don't think they could do it. I think you've had some clients who did a learning adventure related to work where they traveled to other businesses or so it's still kind of workish, but it was not in the business. Mm-hmm. And that's a good, I think if you're really profoundly uncomfortable with unplugging, that's a good strategy. Go learn something that you can bring back. Well, we've had multiple clients at Tap the Potential write books on their four week vacations. And that's a perfect example because a book takes a lot of intensive focus and it's very hard. You can't write a book in between all the things in life. It might take five years to write that book if you do it that way. But having that ability to just intensely focus on something that matters. And the rule of thumb that I have is, does this give me energy? If I'm on my vacation and I'm gonna pick up a business book, am I doing it because I have to? Or am I, does it feel like I want to know what's in this book? I'm curious about it. I can't wait to get to the end and acquire this information. And so it's, does it give you energy? And being on vacation doesn't have to mean sitting on a beach. It it could mean all sorts of different things for different people. And some people are like, well, I don't want to sit. I'm not the kind of person that can just sit on a beach. You don't have to just sit on a beach. The key is that you're not doing your normal day-to-day in the business work activities. Yeah, it's a pattern interruption. 
what's the most important is that you get out of the day-to-day -day routine, like you just said, Dr. Jenny. And when you do that, it creates opportunities for creativity to flourish. And we entrepreneurs use creativity in everything we do. Every problem and challenge that we solve in the business requires our creativity. And when we're just running around from one thing to the next, our creativity is just diminishing more and more and more. Because your brain has to be in a certain state to play and be creative. And if you're checking email endlessly, that's not the brain state that's going to let you come up with creative yeah. solutions. So I am really excited because today is a big day. Your book is available on Amazon. Yes, I timed it perfectly. And today it finally got up uploaded and the ebook is ready. So the book is Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work. And there's a promotion going on right now, Dr. Jenny. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about that. Yeah, so I really want to spread the word and I'm just so excited to see you know, how this can help other people. So the promotion is the ebook on Amazon is 99 cents for the first 30 days and you can gift it to people. So like my thought is if you have a team and you need something for January, you're like, I really want to help my team in January and you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> you can go on and gift it to your team for 99 cents a copy. And then another thing you could do to connect with me if you wanted a bundle of books or something like that is to go to the book website which is www.work-smart.book.com. And you can also just contact me for other ways that I could get you some copies or talk with you more. But I'm very excited. It's been almost a year now in the making and I'm really eager to spread the word. Yeah, well, and just to clarify, the URL is work-smart-book.com. And I love Dr. Jenny's suggestion of sharing this with your team. One of the things that many of our business owners at Tap the Potential do is doing book club discussions with teams. And so this is a book that you can get while it's 99 cents, get it for all your team members, and then have a book club discussion. And I think it, that's a great way just to support your team members in being more effective and more human at work. I know that discussions that would come from this book would really engage team members and help them feel like you care about them as human beings. And over and over in my research, when I look at what are A players looking for in the workplace, when they feel cared about and respected as human beings who have lives away from work and who show up with all their selves at work, not just showing up and filling a role, but when you show them that you respect them as humans, that's where they really engage. So this book is a great tool to support them with that. Dr. Jenny, thank you so much for being with us here on the podcast. I can't wait to hear how the book spreads and what opportunities come out of this because you've written this book. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast and thanks to everyone at Tap the Potential for all the help over the years. And there's a spoiler alert, there is an interview from Dr. Sabrina in the book. So you can also check that out. <laughs> was honored to be included. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your day, Dr. Jenny. Thank you, Dr. Sabrina. Bye. Bye. Thank you for spending time with us today. Join our conversation in the Entrepreneurs Take Your Life Back Facebook community at tapthepotential.com forward slash group. Share your aha moments from today's episode, ask me questions, and join in on the fun with your fellow entrepreneurs on the journey to designing sustainably profitable businesses that give you more time for what matters most and more money in your bank account than ever. And finally, share today's episode with a friend if you know a friend who would enjoy it. 
This is real life business. Keep your chin up, keep moving forward. You got this. If you've gotten value from today's show, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you are a repeat listener of the podcast, know that we greatly appreciate you at Tap the Potential. And to that end, I have a request. Please consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Our reviews help other entrepreneurs like you to find us. Be a part of our movement to help entrepreneurs take your life back from your business.